As Elizabeth has described to you, um, uh, I've been working on the question of tissue economies now for at least well, it's more than 10 years, uh, coming in at this question in different kinds of ways. Uh, and what I'm, when I say tissue economies, I mean the question of how does the exchange and the circulation and the recalibration of biological materials, which have their origins in human and animal bodies and plant bodies indeed, but I focus mainly on human bodies, how do they constitute various types of social relationships? How do they link populations to each other or indeed um, uh, repel from each other, if you like. Um, uh, historically, tissue economies have been central to the concept of the nation uh, and to the concept of citizenship, and we only need to think about the, um, the discourse of the blood banking, um, uh, particularly in Western Europe, uh, as the, the giving of blood as being a primary act of, of citizenship and a, the, gift, the gift to the other, the gift to the, other, the fellow citizen. Um, uh, increasingly, these tissue economies are economies that circulate between populations, not within a nation, but across national boundaries. Um, and uh, increasingly, they are uh, forms of uh, circulation which create relationships between the more and the less privileged, uh, the north and the south. Um, and this is one of the uh, questions I will be looking at today. Uh, and I will also be looking at the ways in which uh, tissue economies suture populations into broader forms of economic uh, productivity. Um, how are human bodies mobilised into bioeconomic development more broadly? How do they contribute, participate in uh, the creation of uh, bioeconomic value or biovalue, as I have called it in, in various uh, works? So what I'm going to be talking about today really is uh, a new book which I'm working on with a, a very brilliant young scholar named Melinda Cooper, who wrote a fantastic book called Life as Surplus, uh, The uh, Life Sciences in the Age of Neoliberalism. And if you haven't read it, you must. Uh, so I'm very, very lucky to be working with Melinda. And what we're doing in this book, the book, uh, its provisional title is Clinical Labour, Tissue Donors and Research Subjects in the Bioeconomy. And what we're doing in this book is we're exploring the proposition that um, human medical subjects, that is those who give tissues to medical research and those who participate in clinical trial um, uh, research uh, are increasingly mobilised not through the tradition of citizenship and voluntary participation but through transactional informal labour relationships. Uh, so this uh, is a fairly... Um, startling proposition in some circles. Uh, I find that in the US people tend to get what I'm saying really quickly because very, the business models which underpin these informal transactional relations have in many cases had their origins in the United States and they're being exported around the world. So people here tend to recognise what I'm talking about more quickly than my European colleagues where the discourse of um, voluntarism and citizenship uh, is still more uh, hegemonic, even if it's not uh, as explanatory as uh, they might think it is. So historically, biomedical research has relied on the idea of the freely consenting volunteer who gives to the public good. Uh, 
um, who gives uh, blood or other types of tissue to either to a fellow citizen for therapeutic reasons or to medical research for the public good. Um, but uh, a number of uh, uh, dynamics have under, uh, uh, made this a less um, uh, persuasive, I guess, form of mobilisation, the commercialisation of uh, biomedicine, um, the simple expansion of biomedical research. Um, so since the uh, mid to late 90s, we've seen a very large scaling up of tissue banking generally. Um, national biobanks uh, that are developing all around the world that aim to enrol very large percentages of the national population. Um, uh, the UK Biobank is aiming for half a million participants, the Icelandic Biobank aimed for the entirety of its national population uh, to be enrolled in the Icelandic Biobank. Um, so we're seeing, we're seeing a, just a scaling up of biomedical research activity. And uh, this simple scaling has reached, in many cases, reached the limits of voluntary, the voluntary system to simply mobilise enough uh, experimental subjects to, uh, to proceed. Um, and, of course, there are many historical precedents to the kind of thing we're talking about. So uh, blood vending, uh, plasma vending, uh, which is something which uh, uh, has taken place in different places around the world at different times. Um, certainly in the United States, plasma vending has been quite a, quite, um, a central practice. Um, uh, and even whole blood vending originally it was then made illegal. Um, uh, the use of prisoners for clinical trial uh, because voluntary mobilisation has not been enough. So you, you either uh, engage in, in formal labour, you get a, a transaction fee-for-service, or you go to a, um, a population that's more or less... Um, what's the word? Uh, incarcerated in the case of prison populations, populations who clearly um, uh, have, um, you know... Um, uh, do not have freedom of movement or are limited in various kinds of ways. So this, form, this type of um, transactional procurement is expanding rapidly, um, but nevertheless tends to be framed as a kind of exception. Um, it's not, certainly not conceptualised in the uh, regulatory agencies that control, that, well, that regulate uh, clinical trial um, work, for example. It certainly isn't conceptualised as labour. It is conceptualised as a type of voluntary um, participation uh, for which uh, the volunteers are compensated and there's a whole rhetoric around uh, the idea that compensation should not be too high because you should not provide um, inappropriate incentives um, for this kind of uh, involvement. Um, so the, the language of voluntarism, um, citizenship, participation and public good is still very much in, in place in the regulatory and the, the bioethical um, circles um, and the... Um, um, sorry, what do you call them in the United States that, that you go to the hospital? IRBs. Yes, the IRBs, yeah. Um, it's very much in place. Now, I'm going to talk about the reproductive um, aspect of this kind of clinical labour. Uh, we're, going, we're looking primarily at, at two different uh, categories, I guess, of clinical labour. One is clinical trial experimentation and the other is um, 
uh, reproductive labour broadly conceived. Uh, and you'll see what I mean as I go. Um, and I'm going to try as I go to think about um, something which I think is very central to the so-called life sciences revolution uh, that began in the 70s with the, um, the commercial application of things like um, um, recombinant DNA technologies, um, PCR, uh, more recently stem cell sciences. Um, and that is that... Um, the technologies of bio, um, biomedical research uh, in the last 30 years or so, a great deal of what they have achieved, I think, is actually a disaggregation and a redistribution of reproductive processes generally. So uh, if we think about biological reproduction in its, um, uh, its many uh, manifestations, um, a great deal of the biotech revolution is precisely about instrumentalising biological reproduction and being able to redirect it, recalibrate it, change its um, direction, um, to be able to do nifty things in vivo, um, sometimes in vitro, uh, sorry, in vitro, sometimes in vivo. Um, and again, you'll see what I mean as I go along here. Um, and this, this disaggregation and redistribution of reproduction has particular very complex implications for women, I think, because women's bodies necessarily have an asymmetrical capacity for uh, reproductive, um, biologically reproductive um, um, capacity. Uh, so it raises a series of complicated questions about how to understand the biopolitics of the relationship between uh, particularly young women, when we're talking about stem cell uh, research and reproductive labour, um, and um, biomedical uh, research and biomedical industries more generally. Okay, so now in my abstract and in the uh, title of my talk, um, I focused on the stem cell industries, uh, but since I sent the abstract and thought of a title for the talk, I've started to do research on fertility outsourcing as well, and I'm going to talk about that as well as stem cell uh, research. Um, and this is what I'm working on right at the moment. Uh, fertility outsourcing uh, is uh, um, those set of practices which um, redistribute um, fertility and, re and the reproduction of children across a number of different bodies. So uh, in vitro fertilisation, um, uh, artificial insemination, um, superovulation, those, those kinds of processes that have been um, being developed within reproductive medicine um, and applied to human beings since the 1970s. Now, uh, in the 1980s and early 1990s, um, we see um, the development of a, a business model which develops in the United States, um, which uh, revolves around commercial gestational surrogacy and oocyte vending. And when I oocyte, I mean egg selling. Yeah, so uh, women who um, will have a superovulation process uh, and then they will um, sell the eggs that are thus produced for a fee. So that's fertility outsourcing. That's what I mean when I say that. Um, 
And in the early 1990s, we see the development of a business model through a contractual process that secures the reproductive capacity of surrogates and oocyte vendors for the use of uh, what are called intending parents in exchange for fees. Uh, it took quite a while for the contractual form to be elaborated and to be um, embedded uh, in a commercially secure way. Uh, and certainly it differs, um, you probably know this more about this than I do, but it differs from state to state in the United States. So California has been the state which has provided the most uh, se secure legal and commercial environment for fertility outsourcing uh, in the sense that it treats surrogacy contracts as enforceable. Um, uh, and it has become effectively the state that has the most, I guess, the most elaborated uh, fertility outsourcing industry uh, in the world. But this business model is being um, exported, um, uh, primarily driven by price competition. So the thing is, of course, um, in California and in the United States more generally, the, the, the cost of this kind of purchasing, these kind of gestational and um, um, fertility um, services has gone up and up and up. So we are now seeing the development of um, competition sites elsewhere in the world. Uh, and at the moment, I'm particularly looking at uh, India. India is, um, the Indian state is very busily marketing its uh, female population as reproductive labourers uh, and also as other types of clinical labourers. What I mean by this is that um, since uh, the Indian government became signatory to the World Trade Organisation, to TRIPS, the Trade-Related Intellectual Property Agreements, and the General Agreement on Tariff and Services, it's created a safe commercial environment for medical tourism, generally speaking, which includes reproductive tourism, uh, and also the conduct of international pharmaceutical clinical trials. So the offshoring of clinical trials to um, less expensive sites, uh, rather than conducting in the United States, where the co or indeed in Western Europe, where the costs are very high, uh, you can conduct your clinical trial in a much more low-cost environment, where you have much better access to um, experimental populations who will come forward for a much lower fee and will uh, make themselves available for um, phase one clinical trial research. But also, um, uh, now there have been a number of clinics which have sprung up, uh, which focus particularly on gestational surrogacy. Um, surrogacy is interesting because it's a very um, uh, potentially global industry in the sense that uh, the surrogate does not make a genetic contribution to the child. Now, it seems to me that a great deal of what fertility outsourcing is about is about the reproduction of whiteness. And that is really, it's not only because there are other groups that will seek surrogacy services, but this is where the money is. <laughs> it's in the reproduction of whiteness. So um, it's quite possible to locate your clinic in Mumbai or Delhi um, uh, and have your primary uh, market in uh, the United States or indeed in Australia. Um, in the United States, it's too expensive to have surrogacy. In many other countries, it's illegal to have surrogacy. So you can draw on uh, these, these populations selectively. Um, so 
the availability of these young, fertile women in India are basically marketed as national assets by the state. That is effectively what I would argue is going on. Uh, the External Affairs Ministry has created a category of medical visa to facilitate medical tu tourism. Um, and these clinics are uh, growing up. Um, uh, and the uh, Indian government has stated that it treats commercial surrogacy con contracts as enforceable. The site I was going to show you was a clinic in Mumbai. And uh, the thing about it which is um, so alarming is that it is full of photographs of lovely blonde blue-eyed mothers with lovely blonde blue-eyed babies. Um, there is not a single photograph. I went right through the website really carefully. There is not a single photograph of anyone that looks like they live anywhere other than Southern California and, and I mean, in the white, you know, the, the richest, whitest suburbs. Um, you would never in a million years know that uh, looking at the, the, the people who are represented on the side that there was any relationship whatsoever to anyone in India. Um, and the thing that strikes me about this is that uh, you have this um, uh, contractual and genetic arrangement whereby you can travel to India, you can reproduce your phenotype, uh, that is, you know, you can make, uh, make a baby that looks like you, um, and you can take the baby home, and uh, there is no trace of the relation to the actual surrogate herself. That is, there's no genetic trace. Uh, there's no contractual trace because the surrogate has no, has no recourse in law to, were she to attempt to contest um, the contract. She has no recourse in law because the contracts are treated as enforceable. So uh, you can go, you can reproduce your, um, your phenotype and you are quits. You are, there's, there's no trace whatsoever on the product, the baby. Uh, if we're looking at uh, O-site vending, however, um, the typical arrangement, again, we need to m really move outside the United States to talk about this, but the way in which O-site vending has been globalised has been uh, uh, through um, the development of these transnational fertility clinics that recruit vendors from populations that are phenotypically similar to purchases but are divided by a regulatory boundary. Now, what I mean by this is uh, the one that I've looked at most thoroughly is the, um, the Spanish um, fertility clinics. Uh, Spain is, uh, I think, the only country in Western Europe that has um, um, commercial um, oocyte vending where women can be paid for, the, paid for their eggs. It is uh, um, illegal, I think, in all, everywhere else in Western Europe. But the... Um, the thing that, uh, that takes place there is that uh, OSITE um, vendors are drawn from the local student population, Spanish, but also uh, women in Eastern Europe um, have uh, developed a, a circuit whereby if you are Ukrainian or you are someone in Eastern Europe or the former Soviet Union, uh, one of the ways you can um, improve your probably fairly low income is to travel from the Ukraine down to Spain and spend a month or two undergoing superovulation, um, being paid about um, 1,000 euro, 1,500 euro, um, and then going back to the Ukraine. And there are women that do this uh, maybe three times a year. 
Uh, and it is basically, it may, may not be their primary source of income, but it's a very substantial source of income for them. Um, and there are anecdotally some crossovers with uh, the sex industry as well. So women who will go and work in the fertility clinics and then also work in the local sex industry and then go home. And that's, that's actually how they make their annual income. Um, so this is, a, when I say um, a phenotypically similar population divided by a regulatory boundary, this is basically North Europeans will travel to Spain uh, because they can purchase eggs from uh, women who are fair and, you know, have appropriately North European features, uh, you know, blue eyes and fair skin. Um, and again, this is very much about the reproduction of whiteness. We can see the logics that are working here. Uh, again, it's not only about that. So there's, there's been a, a Japan-Korea um, outside vending circuit um, that is people from Japan going to Korea and purchasing, South Korea, and purchasing O-sites. That is now no longer operative ever since the Wang scandal uh, um, that closed that little loophole down. Um, <clears throat> but again, I say that the, 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 where the money is is basically in the reproduction of whiteness. Okay, so that is, that is fertility outsourcing. I don't think it is, takes it a huge leap of imagination to see this as a kind of informal labour. That seems pretty self-evident. But I also want to talk about the stem cell industries more broadly um, because there, again, women constitute the primary uh, tissue donors uh, in the stem cell industries which require high volumes of uh, human embryos, oocytes, uh, fetal tissue and umbilical cord blood. But in this case, their participation is generally given for free. Not always, but generally. Uh, even though the, the, uh, the nation, nature of the donation is quite onerous. That is, um, it is something uh, which um, requires uh, a lot of reproductive labour in order, order to produce the actual material that, that you then give away. So that's what I mean by onerous. Now, I'm not sure how familiar people are with the, the whole stem cell area, so I'll just give you a very quick little... Uh, description of what a stem cell is. Uh, it's basically an undifferentiated cell that can both renew itself and give rise to one or more specialised cell types with specific functions in the body. Um, the ones we hear most about are so-called pluripotent stem cells. That is the type of stem cell that you get in the embryo. Um, and it has the capacity to develop into almost all of the body's tissue types. Now, Recent research suggests it may be possible to produce large numbers of pluripotent stem cells that differentiate on demand, providing an unlimited supply of transplantable tissue. The whole stem cell area is um, uh, the hope and the hype of the stem cell area is um, uh, that um, the process of organ transplant will be able to be replaced by uh, stem cell um, tissue uh, transplant instead. So if you have a faulty heart, uh, instead of having to wait on some wretched waiting list for years and years and years and hope that someone dies so that you can get their heart, instead of that, if stem cell research makes the kind of advances that it wants to, uh, instead you'll be able to have um, an infusion of cardiomyocytes um, that will then go about repairing your heart and your heart will be regenerated. So we get the whole logic of regenerative medicine is what presides over the stem cell area. Um, 
So the stem cell sciences, in their use of embryos, cord blood, fetal material uh, and oocytes, aim to transform the generative capacity of female reproductive biology into regenerative capacity, to divert the, this productivity away from the generation of new uh, individuals, babies, and towards the regeneration of ex existing populations. And it's a kind of redistribution, I've, I've argued in other places, it's a kind of redistribution of vitality. So you take a kind of surplus vitality from the site of reproductive biology, you redistribute it to the, um, uh, the uh, ageing population and their lack of vitality, and you... Um, uh, hopefully regenerate uh, people who have things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and heart defects and kidney disease uh, and type 1 and type 2 diabetes and so forth. But to secure this generative potential involves negotiating with different groups of women in various kinds of ways. And I'll just very quickly talk about the ways in which women are mobilised for these different kinds of tissue donation. So embryos, this is one everyone's heard most about. From the early 2000s onward, a number of the OECD countries have developed regulatory systems which permit IVF clinics to solicit surplus embryos for stem cell research. Uh, how an embryo is, is designated to be a spare embryo is quite a complex process and there's been a lot of ethnographic work into this. It's not at all straightforward. Uh, but this whole idea of the surplus is crucial, I think, to the logic of the field. And this idea of surplus is constantly appealed to, that this is, you know, uh, these are spare, they'll just go to waste, we'll just kill them unless you give them to us. Um, but if you, use this, if you use this surplus, they can be transformed into life-saving research. So embryos, embryos are now a fairly well-regulated, embryo donation is a fairly well-regulated uh, phenomenon in most places in the world. Fetal material, uh, which is harvested from pregnancy terminations. Um, now, I'm not sure about the situation in the United States. Um, in the United Kingdom, uh, if you have a termination, you may be approached uh, to donate the, um, the fetus to medical research. Uh, the thing that's striking about the difference between uh, fetal donation and embryo donation is embryo donation has this kind of um, amazingly ceremonious, complex consent process around it that, you know, there's a huge amount of negotiation. There's a great deal of respect shown uh, to the embryo in the procedures. Uh, in the UK, at least, um, uh, fetal donation is much more, um, uh, much less ceremonious. It tends to be uh, something that the woman signs over and uh, there's not a huge amount of discussion about it. Um, uh, cord blood. Um, now, the stem cell industry has, there's a whole arm of the stem cell industry which is organised around private cord blood banking. Uh, companies like Pluristem solicit pregnant women to op open a private cord blood account for their child. And this is the logic of this is that if you keep the cord, cord blood can work in some instances in a way that's fairly similar to um, bone marrow. So if your uh, child develops a um, leukaemia or a severe blood disorder, um, instead of trying to find a bone marrow match for the child, in theory, you can go back to the private cord blood account that you have kept and paid for, uh, although the clinic, it's clinically counterindicated in many cases, but nevertheless, uh, this is still a thriving industry. Um, 
And here we see waste, the waste of the cord blood is transformed into a kind of biological investment. So you invest in the future of your child. Uh, and you also invest in the promise of stem cell science uh, because more and more the cord blood companies are appealing to the promissory value of the stem cell industries and saying, here, this will be your private stem cell account. Uh, and when stem cells can do all kinds of nifty things we think they might be able to do, then you'll have this autologous tissue there at your disposal. And finally, oocytes or eggs. Now, this um, I've been doing a lot of work about oocytes because uh, they are the most unstable type of uh, tissue in the stem cell industries, and they've proved the most difficult to... Um, to recruit. Uh, this is in part because there was already a huge amount of demand in the reproductive uh, IVF clinics in, through, for reproductive use of, of eggs. Um, there's already a worldwide shortage. Um, there's a huge uh, demand for uh, fertile oocytes, and you need fertile oocytes for stem cell research as well, for somatic cell nuclear transfer research. Um, you can't freeze them. Uh, you can freeze them, but uh, the freezing technology is not very good, so they're not very viable when they've been um, defrosted. Um, so the fact you can't freeze a tissue has enormous implications for the ways in which it circulates and the kinds of values you can produce from it. Um, so, uh, and of course now we have this discourse about declining fertility and ways in which our fertility declines once we hit 30 or 35 or whatever it happens to be. Um, so oocytes have developed this enormous scarcity value and the scarcity value is increasing more and more and more every time you turn around. There's another, um, another problem with um, oocyte donation. And because of their scarcity value, um, it's very hard to designate them as a surplus, and there has thus been uh, uh, very, very little success in securing sufficient numbers of oocytes for um, somatic cell nuclear transfer, or otherwise known as therapeutic cloning, might be the term, you know, uh, for that type of research to go ahead. And in fact, many clinics have had to give away that side of their research program because they just cannot get the material that they need. Um, and it's interesting that even in uh, Britain, which has a very highly developed um, bioethical discourse about the gift relation, uh, that they've had to pay um, no, sorry, it's not payment. It's a thing called egg sharing. They have a system of egg sharing which, whereby if you um, promise to give a certain number of your... If you go to IVF, you can sign an agreement that says you will give a certain number of your oocytes to stem cell research, and in, in, uh, in response to that, you get cheap IVF treatment. So it's not, it's not a fee transaction, but it's nevertheless... Um, a type of transaction. Um, and in, in the United States, uh, there's a lot of debate about fees, if they should pay fees, what kind of fees they should pay. And I saw an article just recently uh, in New York State has actually legislated so that uh, stem cell scientists can pay women up to $10,000 now uh, to um, sell eggs for stem cell research. And it remains to be seen whether that will be enough. Um, this really is a huge uh, sort of bottleneck in the, in the process, if you like. So having described these different forms of procurement, um, we can see that it seems to me that uh, one of the things we're looking at in the clinical labour book is that 
with the globalisation of biomedical research, uh, we have this process where different populations are scanned for different types of value. So um, different types of biomedical industries, different types of biomedical disciplines scan different populations for particular kinds of bio biological or socioeconomic or regulatory affordances, that is, uh, points where you can get traction on that population. Um, you can mobilise them in different kinds of ways. You might be able to mobilise them simply through fees because uh, they, they need the money. Uh, you might mobilise them through a more complex kind of discourse around surplus and around, you know, uh, that, uh, the idea that you are, you know, you, you uh, go back to the citizenship appeal, the appeal to future generations, uh, to the good that the medical research might do. Um, uh, another affordance is this kind of regulatory boundary that divides a phenotypically similar population. That gives a kind of regular, that gives you a kind of affordance as well. So that's a kind of model I'm working on at the moment. Um, but we can see basically that female, these different female populations have been being integrated into the lower echelons of the stem cell industries and the fertility outsourcing industries as essential productive agents through various contractual mechanisms, institutional arrangements and regulatory systems that are designed to secure a surplus of biological potential in different kinds of ways. Now, as I said at the beginning, these practices are, are range from a frankly, frankly transactional, so surrogacy is frankly transactional, uh, there's no two ways about what's going on there, to the most sanctified and ceremonious kind of gift relation. Um, so at the one end, the, the surrogacy facility outsourcing end, the relationship to a type of labour seems fairly self-evident, uh, uh, but it's much, a much harder argument to make at the gift relation end. But nevertheless, we are trying to make the argument. Um, and... One of the ways we've done this is by going back to an old debate in feminism uh, known as the reproductive labour debates. Now, people may recall, I'm actually old enough to remember when these were around the first time. This was a, a debate generated primarily by Marxist feminists in the 70s and 1980s. Uh, Michelle Barrett, uh, Christine Delphi, Nancy Hustock are some of the names associated with this debate. And that debate was about how to understand the relationship between reproduction and production. And this is the reason that we have returned to that debate, because it seems to me that that relationship is absolutely central to what we're interrogating in this process. You know, how do we understand... Uh, do we understand reproduction as a form of production? Because, of course, it is... Uh, in liberal theory and in Marxist theory, they are considered uh, as diametric, um, as dichotomies, as diametrically opposed to each other. Um, the central point in the reproductive labour debate arguments was that they, they were not talking about bio, biological reproduction in quite the same way, at least. Uh, this was more about domesticity uh, and the space of domestic reproduction, that is, uh, the space where... Um, uh, childbearing, childcare, housework, nurture, 
the space where uh, the male worker is reproduced in the sense of, you know, cared for, the space in which children are raised uh, and brought up. Uh, and these uh, Marxist feminists argued that this space was not merely a private space of effective life and natural gift relations, because, of course, this was how the, the housewife was framed, that it was part of women's nature to um, uh, give for nothing. <laughs> to give and not receive. Uh, but they argued that this, in fact, this, these, these apparently selfless gift relations were rather a kind of economic activity. And they argued for the recognition of reproductive labour as labour, rather than simply a natural aspect of femininity. Uh, and some of them argued for wages and benefits to be uh, provided on that basis. Um, and what they're effectively doing, and we need to, we need to think back uh, historically to understand the force of what they were saying, because what they were really doing was critiquing a form of life which really um, only pertains to a, quite a particular part of the 20th century, uh, and that is uh, the um, social contract which is often described as the Fordist social contract or the Keynesian social contract, uh, the type of social contract that develops um, at the end of the Depression and particularly in Western Europe reaches its uh, strongest expression after World War II. Uh, again, not quite as well established in the United States in the sense that the United States has never had a, a, um, a completely inclusive welfare state. But uh, nevertheless, you know, they're quite important, the New Deal quite important aspects of uh, that kind of social contract that, in fact, were in place here. Um, and what these, the Marxist feminists were doing were pointing to the foundational economic role of reproduction within the Fordist social contract and demanding a direct form of market recognition for this economic role rather than its transaction through the male wage because that was how the uh, nuclear family was constituted uh, through the uh, mandating of a male wage uh, whereby a man uh, working in, um, uh, you know, typically in um, mass production industry would be paid a wage which was allegedly uh, sufficient to support a family. Um, so they were appealing, uh, they were appealing uh, directly, uh, directly to the state to say that... Um, uh, this, the subsidisation of this type of uh, form of reproduction should not be through the male wages, it should be directly to the woman as a type of recognition of her economic role. Now, we're not the only uh, commentators who have gone, commentators on the bioeconomy who have gone back and looked at this debate as a way to think about these relations between reproduction and production, particularly uh, Charis Thompson's book, people may know called making, I think it's called making parents. Uh, she makes an argument about the, what she calls the biotech mode of production. Um, Donna Dickinson, who's a feminist bioethicist, has also gone back and looked at these reproductive labour debates. Um, and they appear to have quite a strong and interesting relationship to the kinds of phenomena that we're commenting on here uh, because of the, the apparent symmetry in the arrangements. That is that women in the family economy in the 1970s and women involved in gift relations that structure sectors of the stem cell industries today create economic value that is not recognised as such. Um, it's simply treated as a, as a naturally occurring gift 
uh, a naturally occurring surplus which uh, is really already, in a sense, available to be, to be procured. Um, but what we've done with the reproductive labour debates is try and go back and look at the extent to which both the idea of labour and the idea of reproduction evoked in these accounts are embedded in a 1970s formulation and need critical reconsideration. And this is what we're trying to, to do. So at the level of political economy, those accounts rely on a Fordist industrial model of labour and a nation-state model of reproduction, both of which have been significantly displaced. And at the level of biology, they, of course, naturally fail to take into account the significant technical and contractual reworking of the potentials of reproductive biology. And so the rest of my paper is going to be unpacking those two claims. So at the level of political economy, we can see that the post-war domestic post-war Fordist domestic reproduction was organised as a gift exchange through the social state's decommodifying action, that is, the regulatory exclusion of particular social relations from markets as a way to promote social stability. Um, and uh, we, uh, the kinds of, the kinds of um, uh, aspects of life that were decommodified, again, not in the United States, and this is coming back to, coming back to haunt you now, Health, national health, the, the absence of a national health service. Uh, but this was, of course, a major element in the post-war West European uh, welfare state, was an, the idea of a national health service. Um, national education, the notion of social security, the mandating of the family wage. These were all state-initiated actions to... Um, keep the relations of the family outside of the market. And this, so this is not something, something simply occurring, it's actually a very actively constituted um, set of protections and exclusions, uh, which um, uh, have also, of course, uh, been dismantled by the feminist movement uh, because uh, it gave women a very particular um, position in in this, uh, this reproductive, reproductive life, if you like. Um, and it's interesting then to look at, if we go again, go back to the post-war period, uh, in a parallel move, the post-war human tissue economy was also organised as a state-subsidised gift economy. So again, if we look at blood banking being the very first human tissue economy, um, an enormous amount of uh, social... Uh, institutional work, uh, and now still, still today, um, organ donation, is put into keeping those transactions outside of frankly market relations. Uh, and that's still, that's still true, um, again, a bit less so in the United States, but uh, basic, um, basic whole blood donation is still somewhat decommodified, although not exclusively by any means. Um, so we have this situation where we have these two, these two kind of gift economies. We have the tissue, the gift economy of the tissue economy. We have the gift economy of the family. And this, you know, uh, describes this particular kind of historical moment. But this situation begins to come apart in the late 1970s, early 1980s. 
uh, perhaps even earlier. So particularly with the, um, the oil shocks and the changes in the global economy that, start, that begin in 1973 and work their way through, that inaugurate the age of neoliberalism, uh, we get the decline in the notion of the family wage, we get the neoliberalisation of social security, uh, and we get the development of third-wave feminism. Uh, and we see women flooding into the workforce um, uh, and uh, contesting the idea of the male wage, of course. Um, now, one of the effects that this has um, of women entering the workforce is that the labour of domestic reproduction ceases to be just a gift economy and becomes more and more a service economy. And what I mean by this is that... Um, uh, we increasingly see uh, that kind of domestic labour uh, organised, um, uh, contracted out and sold in the market. So we get the um, increasing employment. Women, middle and upper class working women, increasingly employ other women to carry out aspects of domestic care. And this is the work that Saskia Sasson has done, uh, brilliant work on uh, global women and uh, the use of particularly female migrant labour Contract, uh, uh, to contract out work once performed by housewives. So nannying, cleaning, food service workers and sex workers um, are all part of this, um, this uh, new service economy uh, to support these relations that were formerly um, produced within the space of domesticity, which is not to say that they're not produced there as well. And um, I only wish someone would do all my housework. That would be great. Uh, it doesn't happen. Um, unless you're very, very wealthy indeed, of course, and some people can afford it. But um, uh, so we get this, we get this reproductive labour, this becomes, reproductive labour becomes, frankly, reproductive labour, becomes transactional, market-driven, um, sometimes often informal, but nevertheless clearly a form of labour. So we can say that a major difference between Fordist uncompensated reproductive labour and the contemporary relations of reproduction is a denationalisation of the reproductive sphere and its exposure to global precarious labour markets. And this is a key part of what we're arguing. Um, so instead of reproduction being primarily something located in the, um, within the space of a nuclear family, within the space of the nation... Uh, and outside of labour relations is increasingly, increasingly reproduced through uh, the global circulation of migrant labour um, and it's increasingly uh, reproduced through various kinds of um, market relations. So we can see this. This is a very easily seen when we talk about the Indian surrogacy market. Yeah? Uh, this is clearly a denationalisation of reproduction where the site of reproduction becomes offshore and you go outside of your country specifically so that you can purchase reproductive services. Um, and it's interesting that these circuits are often closely aligned with the geographies of labour migration more generally. So, again, I go back to my East European women example. Uh, so uh, they are a major uh, part of the O-site vending population uh, but, of course, they're also a major part of the uh, migrant population throughout Europe who work as nannies, cleaners, sex workers. Um, so there, there, there's interesting and significant crossovers happening between these different two populations. 
Now, I'm going to now just talk about the actual biology itself and uh, ways in which uh, biology has to be rethought to understand how we can think about it as a kind of clinical reproductive labour. Um, I'll first talk about fertility outsourcing and the biology of assisted reproduction. So for the greater part of the 20th century, assisted reproduction technologies and IVF have been devoted precisely to the mass reproduction of animal life for industrial agriculture. That is where IVF technologies emerged. They emerged from the management of large animal, uh, industrial animal herds, uh, cattle and sheep and so forth. Um, and that technology has inherited the concerns with standardisation, rationalisation and a kind of factory production model of scientific management. So we can think about IVF um, as a process which intervenes at different points in the trajectory of in vivo reproduction. It breaks it down into its components, it scales some of the components up or scales them down, and it renders them ex vivo. So what I mean by this is that instead of reproduction as being something which takes place inside the body through the self-regulating self biology, which you know, goes to work to make your baby, you actually um, identify the different points in the reproductive process as if you're breaking it down into a production line, if you like. So you disaggregate uh, insemination from con uh, conception, uh, you, you can disaggregate the egg from the body, and with gestational surrogacy, you can disaggregate the uterus from the actual contracting parent. Uh, so we see this way in which the process of reproduction gets redistributed um, in a much more, um, in, in a sense, like a kind of industrial production line. Um, and by doing this, it gets around certain kinds of clinical bottlenecks in the process. So typically, people who go to have uh, fertility treatment have some kind of problem with one of these processes. Uh, and by rendering it ex vivo, you can then address the particular problem. So it might be a problem with sperm, it might be a problem with eggs, it might be a problem with gestation itself. And if you can just isolate and externalise these different aspects, then you can get around the bottleneck and you can get your baby in the end. Well, you may not. Of course, the success rates are not that high. Um, but So it's a kind of industrialisation of the process of reproduction. And it's precisely this industrialisation which lends it to the new kinds of spatial ordering. So you can use Indian populations, you can use East European populations as reproductive sites precisely because of this disaggregation. And it seems to me that it's very, very similar to the offshoring and subcontracting manufacturing which happened in the 1980s. So um, we see, of course, you know, what happened uh, in response to the, the falling rates of profit for industrial manufacturing in the United States and um, uh, Western Europe, uh, is that manufacture goes offshore. It goes to um, southern China in particular. Um, but, of course, head office stays in Europe and the United States. You subcontract your production out to this other site. And it seems to me this is really effectively what is happening with this offshoring, this offshoring is, um, um, fertility outsourcing. You identify low-cost populations who can facilitate different stages of your reproductive process um, more cheaply than you could uh, if you were to stay in the relative wealth of um, the global north. 
So the process, nevertheless, is different from stem cell, uh, the stem cell process because it's uh, concerned with preserving the developmental pathways that will eventually produce a child, even if these pathways have to travel through several different bodies. You keep the pathways more or less the same, you just divert them outside the body, send them, and then eventually you'll send them back. Um, now, stem cell research is quite different from this um, because it's precisely concerned with disrupting the teleology of the production of an organism, a child. Um, it's precisely about experimenting with cellular potential and diverting cellular potential off in all kinds of novel ways which have nothing to do with the reproduction of an organism. Um, so you use IVF technologies to disentangle reproductive material from the maternal body. So you, you use IVF to get the eggs, get the embryos, um, but then you define the potential of the cell in a radically different way from how it's defined in reproductive medicine. So in the case of embryonic stem cells, the pluripotency of the embryo is diverted away from the production of the, um, of the um, blastocyst, uh, eventually the fetus, and towards the production of a cell line. And the cell line immortalizes the tissue and facilitates its self-perpetuating potential in vitro. A cell line, they're called uh, immortalized cell lines because theoretically a cell line will live indefinitely. It can just reproduce the same kind of tissues over and over and over again in the laboratory. Um, theoretically, then, the embryonic stem cell line can produce any of the specialised, fully differentiated cells that constitute a develop developing organism, while continuing to divide and produce more of themselves in an uncommitted ex-organism state. Now, this is a technology concerned with the potential of the cell. Uh, it's concerned, concerned with the future possibilities of differentiation uh, that are always surplus to the finite possibilities of differentiation within the organism itself. Uh, if our bodies start to proliferate cells in an immortalised fashion, we call it cancer. And, uh, of course, it is an extremely serious uh, clinical condition. But precisely the same kind of open-ended proliferation in vitro is an extremely biovaluable capacity and it's, you know, much highly sought after. Um, so the biology of the cell is being reorganised around the promissory value form which, is, which animates the stock market-driven post-fortis mode of accumulation, or at least it did until about a year ago. Uh, so, you know, we've been very much um, enculturated to an economy which works on the promise of value, which is what stock market value is. It's always about value which takes place in the future. And suddenly the future seems to have stopped. And <laughs> uh, it's kind of intriguing to think about how the promissory value of biomedicine is going to um, uh, relate to this failure of promissory value in the, wa the, brighter, the water, broader economy. So I'll just make a couple of concluding comments. Um, as I said, uh, a key feature of life sciences research and bioeconomic development since the 1970s has been about the recalibration of reproductive processes of biology. Uh, and more and more, these processes are being turned into a new material base for production. The whole regenerative medicine um, uh, paradigm 
is precisely about securing the reproductive processes of biology and transform, transforming them into a new material base for the production of clinically useful material. And I think it would be fair to say if we combine that uh, development with the development I was talking about before, the ways in which the uh, reproductive sphere of Fordism has been um, uh, put on the market, if you like, I think it would be fair to say that we can say that reproduction in general has been put to work. So the whole of reproduction is now involved in a kind of labour. Both the domestic life of the Fordist economy and the biological reproduction of the body have been put on the labour market, if you like. And really what we're trying to do in the book is to think about how that development, uh, the implications of that development for women. Because, as I said, uh, there's an women have an asymmetrical capacity in reproductive biology. And so the implications of this development... Um, as well as an asymmetrical place, of course, in the reproduction of the family. So this development has, uh, it seems to me, very consequential implications for women, uh, which we're only now beginning to even be able to think about. So I'll stop there. <laughs>